this is Case Report Hospital receiving. Over. We have a pre-alert from the ambulance crew for you. Are you ready in ashes? Receiving. Over. We have a 65-year-old female en route. There was collapsed at home. She's generally unwell. Her condition, we have been given a heart rate of 155, but it's an irregular. SATs of 95%. Respiratory rate of 29. A blood pressure of 85 over 42. A temperature of 35.5. And a GCS of 14. With an ETA of 5 minutes over. My name is Owen, I'm the advanced paramedic who's leading this patient. We have a 65-year-old female here who has collapsed at home. She felt fine prior to the episode. She has no previous medical history. Uh, her signs are she's a tachycardic at 160 and it's in a regular rhythm. Her oxygen saturation is 95% on 15 litres uh, non-rebreather mask. Respiration rate is up to 32. Blood pressure currently is 73 over 48, 73 over 48 with a temp of 35.5. And GCS is 14, which is a 3, 5 and 6. Her, she's getting oxygen. We couldn't get any IV access. She does seem to be getting a bit more confused. Uh, okay, she's no known drug allergies. Uh, we are unsure of any medical uh, medication she's on, denies any anticoagulation therapy. She does have obesity and a previous uh, left hip replacement and query DVTs, nothing else of note. So folks, let's get the patient transferred over onto our bed and let's put monitoring on and try and get IV access. Thanks. This is the Case Dot Report. Welcome back to another episode of the Case Dot Report. Mohammed Hams is my name, and I'm delighted to have you with us. We're back with our May 2021 episode, which means it's been a year since we launched our first episode. And what a year it's been! Our audience and our team have grown. People have hit play over 11,000 times in 60 different countries. And trust me, we're only getting started. So for our first birthday special, Callum's taking the reins and exploring the people's ventricle. The adult in the room, or our consultant on call tonight in TCR University Hospital, needs no introduction. It's the one and only Andy Neal. But let's catch up with Callum and Rhesus and see what he's got for us. Let's get to it. Callum, welcome to the podcast and welcome to uh, Rhesus. Your patient's on the way in. What are you What are you thinking? Thanks, Mo. You took me straight in the deep end here. Um, this patient yeah. sounds very sick. So, you know, they're hypertensive, they're very tachypneic, they're altered, GCS, tachycardic. So uh, this is obviously a big Rhesus case. I'm going to prepare myself and my team. Um, I love that Clifford step up mnemonic and the whole concept mm -hmm. that resuscitation begins when you receive the pre-alert, you know, not when the patient arrives. So in terms of myself, I like to cognitively offload anything else that's on the go. So if I have a patient that I need to, I don't know, repeat a troponin on or whatever, I just quickly find the nurse and ask them to do that and tell the patient that I'll be with them in an hour or so and just try and clear my mind so that I'm fully focused on the case that comes in. With regards to the team, you know, as I said, it's a very sick patient. So I'd actually pick up the phone here 
and ring the consultants um, and just let them know they're coming in. So I'll do that quickly now. Okay. Um, so yeah, I've let, let the consultant know and um, they're on their way in, which is great. And given that it's COVID times, you know, every resus is full PPE. So it's quite annoying. You can't go in and out. So I usually like to delegate to an SHO who's not involved in the case, the job of booking a portable chest x-ray as soon as the patient's registered and also printing off old discharge summaries or clinic letters if they've previously been to that hospital um, and just bring them into me as soon as they're available. And then I'll gather my team, which, you know, for a medical resus, it's going to be me and two nurses would be the norm, maybe an SHO if there's one free, which would be great. And, you know, just briefly run through the patient, what we're expecting to happen. There's an arrhythmia here, there's shock. So we're thinking about different types of shock. And we're thinking about the priority interventions, um, which for the nurses would be IV access and getting the defib and monitoring on. So I'd give that to one nurse each. Um, and obviously, uh, I'll help with the IV access if, if they struggle, but it's important to get that stuff done early. And then finally, the environment. So the recess bay, someone this sick, I always prepare for managing the airway before they arrive. So for me, that means a, a Maplesen C circuit attached to the filter with the end tidal, make sure the end tidal is off standby, get a nasal cannula, and plug them both into the oxygen and then just check the battery on a McGrath and make sure there's a bougie and a correctly sized tube and eye gel. I wouldn't open them, but they're all just there. And then because this person's in shock, I would probably draw up push dose adrenaline just by taking the one mil out of the cardiac arrest refill syringe and diluting it down to 10 mils. And then I'd make sure there's an ultrasound machine in there with me as well. And then um, we're ready to go. Now, very organized and your team is very motivated. So so uh, you have all of that ready and uh, the NAS come in and uh, hand you over this patient. Okay. So yeah, right. it's got even sicker since the pre-alert. So I'm going to perform my primary survey from the end of bed. The, she looks awful, looks really unstable and well. So her airway. So her airway is patent. Super. And, you know, she she's talking to me, so that's fine. Um, yeah. In terms of her breathing, what's her respiratory rate? Yeah, so she's Tikipnik, working a bit hard. She's got a respirator of 32. Okay, so that's very significant. And just listening to the lungs, is there any wheeze, any mm -hmm. crackles? No wheeze, it's all clear when you're listening to it. Yeah. Okay, so that's a really important finding to note because, you mm -hmm. know, that degree of tachypnea with normal lung exam, you're thinking something like metabolic acidosis or different causes of mm -hmm. shock. I'd pop the oxygen on, non-rebreather, 15 liters, and uh, chest x-rays on route as per the plan beforehand. I'd do a lung ultrasound at this point and just rule out a pneumothorax so is, is their lung sliding no, you're, you're, you're team leading so you'd probably let uh, one of your helpers do that lung okay lung super well i've yes. got an SHO great and uh, yeah. are there any you know beelines or is it just so your uh, your shos have a look at the lung with the uh, ultrasound and you can all see there's lung sliding bilaterally okay super so there's no pneumothorax um, and then while i'm doing this assessment and the ultrasound has been done i'll just take a brief ample history so does she have any allergies no allergies on any medications She's not too sure, but uh, when you ask specifically about anticoagulants, she says she's not any. Okay. And in terms of past medical history? She's a type 2 diabetic. Uh, she's had a PE in the past, and uh, she's quite a large lady. Okay. So she's, uh, she's obese. When did she last eat? Uh, she had something to eat about two hours ago. Okay. And I just want to drill down into the events because this is really key in teasing apart the, the likely causes of the shock. You know, was she feeling ill in the previous few days or that morning, or did this happen suddenly? So she's been feeling uh, okay the last few days, felt fine up to that morning, didn't have any cough or fevers or abdomen pain or anything, but just suddenly felt very faint and collapsed. Okay, that's that's really important to know. So I'll go and examine her cardiovascular systems, so always start with the hands and, you know, what do they feel like? What's the temperature? So they're cold and they feel a bit clammy. Okay, and capillary refill time? Quite prolonged. You're measuring about six seconds. Okay, and am I getting a blood pressure on the non-invasive? 
So she's very hypotensive. Okay. Um, and heart rates, uh, so she was tacky coming heart in. Heart rate's going at about, yeah, so she's still tachycardic, so she's going at about 160. Okay. Uh, and uh, the rhythm looks like it's uh, in AF. Okay. So I'll ask one of the nurses if they're free to get an ECG. Um, and really a priority here is getting IV access. The nurse has already failed, understandably, because of the body habitus landmark. So I grab the ultrasound and do it with that. And I do it successfully, but it's a tricky one. Um, I wasn't using a long cannula, especially made long peripheral mm-hmm. IV. It was just a normal one. And when the you know when the veins are deep on an obese person, you only get a little bit of the the cannula in. So I backwalled it as I went in, and you know I've got a line; it will work. But I'm also a bit cautious about using that for things like vasopressors, um, which is annoying. Okay. It'd be great to have a, a bomber line, but. At this point, I'll send off some bloods. So uh, routine bloods plus a coag, D-dimer, fibrogen, troponin, and a VBG as well. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, I'd probably do an ABG here as well. So just given the degree of respiratory failure. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's reasonable in this case. So uh, she's on the 15 liters that you put on her a little while ago while assessing her breathing. Her pH on that ABG is 7.21. PO2 of 8.4. PCO2 is 5. Bicarb is 16, glucose is 40, and lactate is 9.7, and her electrolytes are normal on that gas. Okay, so she's got a profound type 1 respiratory failure um, and a metabolic acidosis. Concerningly, the CO2 is kind of high normal, and uh, you'd expect it to be a bit lower with this degree of metabolic acidosis. That might indicate a degree of failing to compensate because of tiring. Lactate of 9.7, that's just a marker of all-cause badness. But, you know, the mortality associated with that is, is very high. Glucose of 40, I just check a finger stick ketones to make sure it's not TKA. And then I would start uh, 500 mil Hartmann's bolus and uh, write up some broad-spectrum antibiotics. Uh, we're still not sure what's going on, but both of those are fairly reasonable interventions at this point, I think. Absolutely. Uh, do I have an ECG back here? Yeah, so uh, just tearing off the ECG from the machine there. Uh, it is an AF and uh, going at about a rate of 150, uh, but no obvious acute ischemic changes. Okay, super. And I'm going to do a focused echo at this point to have a look at the LV mm-hmm. and RV function and the, the IVC. So first of all, is there a pericardial effusion? No pericardial effusion. Okay, there. great. So that's that's two causes of shock ruled out so far. And then looking at the RV and the LV, is any evidence of RV strain? So the RV does look noticeably larger than the left ventricle. The TAPSI is visibly reduced. Okay. LV function looks preserved and IVC is 2.8 centimeters with no respiratory variation. Okay. So that's really useful findings and that's, you know, very much in keeping with the obstructive type shock. In terms of the disability assessments, what's a GCS? GCS is 14. Okay. Uh, she's a, she's just a little confused. Sugars are 40, like we mentioned, and ketones are 0.1. Super. And then just to complete the exam, is her abdomen soft? Any tenderness there? Abdomen soft, okay. non-tender. And just looking at the limbs, any obvious wounds or source of infection? No wounds or rashes or anything like that that you can see. Okay. So at this point, you know, I'd like... I think it's more more uh, useful to generate a problem list rather than a differential diagnosis. And then we can just cheat each problem without necessarily knowing the underlying diagnosis yet. Um, so the, the problems that we're dealing with here, this profound shock, really peri-arrest type situation, um, her, her um, myocardial coronary perfusion is going to be you know, compromised at that level and without intervention, she's she's going to rest quite soon. We've got this atrial fibrillation with a rapid ventricular rate and we've got type 1 respiratory failure and then we've got a marked metabolic acidosis. So 
in terms of thinking the underlying cause that's unifying all this, you know, I'm very much thinking obstructive, but it is useful just the same in an arrest, the way you run through all the H's and T's, even if you if there's one that's quite obvious. I think it's useful to think about all the different causes of shock. You know, cardiogenic from an arrhythmia, it's possible, but you know, from my experience, AF rarely causes profound shock, and especially not when with the rate of around 150. It's usually just a, a bystander from another underlying pathology. Cardiogenic from an MI, again, possible here, it could be an RVMI, the LV look good on ultrasounds, and there's nothing ischemic on the ECG, uh, so that would go against it. Septic is very unlikely here because it's such an acute illness. There was no preceding illness, and uh, the IVC is plethoric. You know, there's no evidence of hypovolemia. So again, hypovolemic shock, very unlikely, and no history of GI losses or, or any obvious bleeding. Distributive, very unlikely, no nothing clinically to support anaphylaxis, and uh, IVC is, again, plethoric. And then obstructive is, is definitely the most likely. We've ruled out pneumothorax and tamponades um, with fairly high certainty with the ultrasound. And so that leaves a P and that certainly fits with the history of syncope, previous previous medical history of P, and then the findings, especially on echo um, of RV strain and IVC dilation. So, you know, we've got to manage this patient and we've got to do things quite quickly. We don't have a conf- confirmatory diagnosis, but we've got a, a strong working diagnosis. But this patient's really unstable and it's going to be very complex to manage. And it, it kind of represents the crux of emergency medicine in that we've got to weigh up the value of gathering additional information before acting versus the cost of not deciding and not acting. So, you know, traditionally, certainly on the case report, we've had uh, the registrar run through the whole case and, and manage the patients. And at the end, just uh, mention it to a consultant. But here, I'm, I'm glad I rang the consultants and delighted that uh, Andy can be joining us today and help me manage this patient because they're, they're really unwell. And it's becoming uh, the norm, you know, for consultants to be there in the recess room guiding, guiding the juniors, which I think is fantastic. So thanks so much for coming in, Andy. I know you were at home. Well, I was just, I was out picking up the chips for the dinner anyway. So I was in the neighborhood. So I would call in, you know, make sure you have it all in hand. Seems like you do. So I'm going to go home and eat the chips. I, I very much don't. So there's a few big decisions here that I need to make. And I'm not sure <laughs> what the, um, what the right ones are, you know? Yeah, you've run into patient. Like this is very sick patient. He's got certainly, I think you've differentiated the shock down a little bit here. Again, there's nothing else I would do different. The echo is the real key decider here in terms of which pathway you're going down is the shock. Otherwise, the only thing I would have thought of doing without an echo would be a finger in the bum can sometimes be useful when you're worried because this lady could have had hemorrhagic shock called big GI bleed. That's the only other thing I would have thought about doing maybe without an echo. But once you have the echo, I think the echo is leading us down a very particular direction. Okay. Yeah. And I, I don't think they're stable enough to get to CT. So I think we need to stabilize them prior to that. And there's yeah. a few things I want to ask you. So, you know, the first thing you see with a tachyarrhythmia and clear, clear signs of shock, you know, ACLS just says, give them a cardioversion but you know i think this af is just a bystander i don't think it's the cause yeah i think emergency medicine atrial fibrillation is a little bit different from acls atrial fibrillation and i agree with you it's very rarely the underlying cause of the shock i've seen a few post ablation people who get afib they've had an ablation for afib and the afib comes back they tend to be pretty sick and the shock can be helpful but most of the time it's because something else is going on i have cardioverted sinus rhythm and as i said everybody if you haven't cardioverted sinus rhythm you haven't been doing the job for long enough so sometimes these decisions are um, very very hard to make so we've got a few options i probably wouldn't go down the fibrillation route to do it you're going to need some sedation i think sedation would probably precipitate cardiac arrest i think doing it without some sedation is probably not going to happen so yeah. I think there's little to begin from the, the shock. Right. So, any other options? Well, I was thinking then, you know, magnesium and uh, amiodarone are reasonable choices in terms of rate control. 
I think these are fairly common vitamin deficiencies in emergency margin patients. You need some vitamin mag and some vitamin vitamin A, don't you? Vitamin M, vitamin A. All, the, all of our patients need um, magnesium and amiodarone. I think magnesium is fairly benign. It's unlikely to cause cardioversion. Can make the blood pressure a little bit worse. But again, what we're arguing here is that the rate is now so fast that the rate is impairing ventricular filling. That's really why we're trying to slow things down is because we believe the rate is a problem. So I think as the rate comes down, we'd be hopeful that the blood pressure would actually come up. I think magnesium is a reasonable option. Probably I would just reach for a bullet. Family, we're going to give 150 of Amio. Super. So that comes on to the hypertension um, and, you know, likely imminent cardiac arrest. So I started some fluids during the primary survey uh, because I you know, hadn't got any cause of the hypertension. That's a reasonable first step, but I was probably going to stop them now. Do you think that's reasonable? Well, I think looking at those images you've got on the echo, I mean, that RV is blown and that RV is pushing all the way into the left ventricle. And we talk about that D-shaped septum. So normally on a parasternal short axis, you'd expect the LV to be nice and round. The septum here is completely flattened and the RV is really distended. And that distension of the right ventricle is actually impairing filling of the left ventricle and the hypotension is coming from that. Yeah. So any further volume loading into that right ventricle is going to push the septum further into the left ventricle and actually probably make the, the, the thing worse. Um, so I think it's probably perfectly reasonable give the fluids till you know better but now you know stop the fluids it's not something that's going to be helping this patient super and while we're on that theme you know only 250 mils has gone in would you get fruzamide I'd probably not rush for it there's a couple of reasons for that I think there's probably bigger problems to be addressed than that and I think even any dose of fruzamide you give with a blood pressure like that it's not even going to hit their kidneys it'll just transfer round and round the body until it gets metabolized it's unlikely to ever actually make it into a whatever the, the the ascending thick limb of Henley that it's actually meant to get into to work. So I think Fruzumide is unlikely to help at this stage because they're overall, their total body volume hasn't changed. It's not like they've been a CHF or at home accumulating sodium and fluid for days and days. This is a very sudden event and decreasing um, their intravascular volume is probably not going to be a huge help at this stage. That being said, Sick RVs do benefit from fluid offloading, perhaps not in this immediate setting, but certainly it's something to think of going down the line. If I'd given two liters of fluid before you arrived, would you would you be more likely to reach for it then? I'd probably be a little bit more to reach for okay. it. Yeah, yeah. And then so that leaves us with inopressors, you know, something either peripherally or centrally to increase that blood pressure, which we have to do, you know, very very urgently. So there's yeah. a number of different choices. Uh, it, it's going to be a complex choice because we've only got one kind of dodgy peripheral line, which I, I know I backwalled while putting it in. So there's a risk of extravasion and things. So, and we've got a variety of different uh, vasopressors and inotropes at hand. One of the ones that's often reached for first, just because it's pre-mixed, is phenylephrine. But um, it, you know, in this case, I think it's a terrible choice because it, it just increases pulmonary vascular resistance and you'll increase the RV afterload. So I probably wouldn't go for that. But then adrenaline, you know, I had pre-mixed some um, adrenaline at 10 mics a mil. You can give it peripherally. How do you feel about that just initially to stabilize the situation? Again, it, it's easily accessible. I mean, it, the problem is there's almost too many choices when it comes to these types of drugs. Um, and all of them, if you're not using one, you feel that the other one you're not using is probably better. I mean, a lot of them are much of a muchness in this kind of scenario. Um, adrenaline's not a bad. It's going to give you some squeeze. It's going to give you some squeeze of the vasculature. It's also going to improve some squeeze of the heart. It's probably going to be okay. Your problem is your rate's already fast. You put some adrenaline in there, you're likely to push them up um, even further. Like all of the guidelines and all these things say, noradrenaline is probably the pressure of choice for pretty much any condition these days. And noradrenaline peripherally, while it can be done, which is probably a whole topic in itself, peripheral noradrenaline, probably are easy kind of surrogate for that is probably metaraminal 
Um, a little syringe of metaraminol is not a bad idea. It's kind of a little bit like noradrenaline in a push dose form. You're not going to get that same tachycardia you get with adrenaline, but you are going to get some inotropic activity. You are going to get some vasopressor activity as well. I mean, ultimately, this patient's going to need ongoing vasopressor support and all the talk about, oh, what can we give peripherally? What can we not? I mean, all of these things can be given peripherally. All of these things can cause harm peripherally. Ultimately, I think this patient's heading towards the central line yeah. very quickly. And I think given the differential that we have, I think it's different if it's hypovolemia either with bleeding or by GI losses. That's something you can replace with a peripheral IV and you will not need ongoing pressors. What we're talking about here is someone who's likely to need ongoing pressors or likely to be sick for a while. We also need to get a definitive diagnosis. All of those will be much easier by a mixed, a combined arterial um, and a central line in the groin, you're not going to get access to this lady's neck. Um, so you're really going to, so if you could have someone with the skills to get in the groin, to place an arterial line and a femoral line, yeah. a central line as quickly as possible, that would be really helpful. The dirty double. So you're, 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 they're just, uh, they're, they're just kind of tiding you over while you're doing the firefighting. And then, yeah. And I'm not saying don't give them a bolus of whatever your presser, adrenaline or metaraminol of, but you're only going to buy five, 10, 15 minutes there. Mm. And I think there's a lot more in this case still to work through. I think we're going to need some definitive access. And are you doing that full sterile, you know, um, prep and drape. You do this, I'd say, as sterile as possible. So again, these are all, if you look back at all the hairy resuscitations you've had in your career, some of them are really like, this needs to go in now, or the others are, ah, 15 minutes to put this in. There is a very, very small number of people where it needs to go in right now, and those will often be less than sterile. I think that's a very reasonable thing to do, as long as everybody knows this is not a sterile thing and should be handed over and should be removed within a one to two day period. I mean, they're not going to get a staph bacteremia within six hours of you putting in a femoral line, but entirely clean um, but it, it does need remember that this should be changed at some point if you can do it and a lot of the people just because people are hypotensive doesn't mean they're peri-arrest um, and we probably overuse that term but for the person who's truly peri-arrest um, I think it's okay to do it maybe with not entirely sterile technique again a lot of this comes down to what people describe as resource room readiness that you have a pack layer quickly with everything in it because the length of time to put the central line isn't the length the length of time is getting everything set up all the bits there all that kind yeah. of stuff putting in the central line takes the same length no matter what but if you have all the stuff ready there and then you can make a better attempt at the sterility. And then um, just one vasopressor we haven't mentioned, which, you know, my understanding is it's pretty good in RV failures, vasopressin. Um, and that's because it, you know, it doesn't increase your, your pulmonary vascular resistance as much as your systemic vascular resistance. Yeah, so I suppose just to think back about vasopressors, vasopressors will increase your blood pressure by increasing tone. Noradrenaline does that primarily by increasing venous tone, but it will increase arterial tone. But when you're increasing tone in vessels, you're also causing things like the pulmonary artery to increase its tone and to increase the resistance through that vessel, which is the last thing we want. That's the whole underlying process here is all that resistance in the pulmonary artery. So if we can have an agent that will cause constriction of other vessels, but not the pulmonary artery, then that would be brilliant. Or even dilation of the pulmonary artery would be even better. And vasopressin is suggested, again, from all this kind of bench physiological research that it might be useful. It's not a particularly titratable agent. We tend to use it as a fixed dose. You put it on, you put it in the background and it knocks 10 or 20 off your noradrenaline dose. Um, I would probably start again with noradrenaline, but once you're at noradrenaline doses escalating, I'd certainly vasopressin is a very good option to have as well. And you mentioned pulmonary vascular vasodilation. So that kind of brings us onto inhaled agents. And what do you think their role is here in, in the AD? So, so I think this is very niche. So I think we're now getting beyond the kind of the, what would be considered standard care. So in the intensive care unit, we're currently 
really working with lots of options. You can give inhaled diproprostanol, um, you can give inhaled nitric oxide, and these are great at improving V2 mismatch, at a kind of reducing RV afterload. They're, they're great agents. They're not accessible in the emergency department largely. Now, Baron from Josh Farkas, who did some recent posts on this, he's thought about using GTN nebulized. So this wouldn't be IV GTN. IV GTN is a good way to kill this patient. Inhaled GTN, there are a number of small little cardiac surgery trials suggesting that you can nebulize GTN. GTN is metabolized to, guess what, nitric oxide. And that can take some of the um, afterload away from the right ventricle. And in those little tiny studies that were done, it seemed to reduce the pulmonary vascular resistance, but without causing issues with systemic perfusion. All very attractive and niche and physiological, not in, in the slightest bit of an established practice to do. I would consider it, I have to say, um, a little bit of nebulized GTN. The kind of only equivalent that is used is in cardiac surgery. Um, Milrinone. Um, so if, say five milligrams of milrinone thrown down in an endotracheal tube is often used in cardiac surgery as a rescue technique for a failing right ventricle. Again, that's a million miles away from where we are at the minute, but there are a few options out there to consider. Um, I, I don't think we're going to rush to be doing any of these things. Yeah. The nebulized GTN is one I would consider, but these are like, as Josh describes these things, these are the bleeding edge, him sitting alone in the room looking through papers and coming up with cool physiologic ideas. I, I think he's onto something, but I wouldn't pretend we have the practice or the evidence to back mm. that up as yet. Yeah. The evidence base is, is poor in any of these super unwell patients because it's obviously very difficult to recruit sufficient numbers to trials. So you're unlikely to get, you know, really strong RCT evidence for a lot of interventions in someone this unstable. So, um, uh, one of the nurses comes over to you guys and says, look, you know, you can talk physiology all you want later on, okay? But we've got a patient in front of us here, guys. Oh, crap, a patient. I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> I stopped sipping my latte and eating my chips. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. okay. My next big question so, for you uh, was thrombolysis. <laughs> okay, yeah, I think that's probably the key decision here because your differential, I think you've appropriately um, narrowed it down with your um, ultrasound, uh, is that we have a really feeling RV in the context of hypertension, in the context of someone with a previous PE who's not currently anticoagulated. The only cherry I would want on the cake for this would be if you could show me a clot on a femoral vessel on an ultrasound. So if you could show me a clot in a, in a vein, a DVT, in this context, then I, I think we're done. The diagnosis is kind of made at that stage. I do not think the diagnosis is made yet just with the information we have so far. But if we are dealing with the PE, it's really important to state that we're dealing with a massive PE or a high-risk PE. So you can choose your guidelines, American versus European. European has low, intermediate, and high risk. This is a high-risk PE if it is a PE. Now the challenge is if we're saying, do we have enough data point to justify giving thrombolysis at this stage or should we be chasing down a CT scan before we go for that? I don't think that's a particularly straightforward decision to do and it depends whether or not you can make this patient stable enough to justify getting them to a CT scanner. And I think the older your patient is, the more likely they are to have an alternative pathology apart from PE. This could be a long-standing pre-existing right heart failure for some reason. And if you jump in there with thrombolysis for someone who actually just has sepsis in the context of a pre-existing right heart failure, you're in diffs. So it's all about balancing risks. I think in this scenario, you've certainly driven us down the line of I think thrombolysis for PE seems appropriate, but you should always try and see, can you get the definitive diagnosis if you can? So let's talk about the data points we do have. So yeah. we're, we're, we're leaning quite heavily on our uh, echo findings. So Callum, talk us through the echo findings that we have already and what would point us specifically towards PE? Um, so we're, we're looking at the RV relationship and size to the LV and you said that it was bigger. So anything more than 50% or one-to-one ratio is, is RV dilation. Now that can be acute or that can be chronic. 
One way you can maybe differentiate the two is the RV wall thickness. So you can measure the RV free wall. And I think it's more than five mils is deemed to be um, thick. But I wouldn't put too much clinical judgment on that because it would be outside my area of kind of competency. It is also dependent on very good images and is not a straightforward yeah. thing to measure. So while that comes up all the time as a way to differentiate, it's actually very yeah, difficult. It, Can I jump in and say, I don't think any, any of the signs of that we've seen on the echo here are specific for pulmonary embolism. Yeah. I think the signs you've seen in the echo are specific for the RV is yeah. the problem and it's certainly causing a problem. Now, the bit that makes the PE, the data points for PE here are the clinical history of sudden onset and you have syncope, you have tachycardia, you have hypotension, and then the past history of risk factors of yeah. prior PE with absence of anticoagulation plus from clinical exam outruling all the other forms of um, shock that we thought about. That's how you get there, not just the echo. And this is the commonest mistake we all do when we start doing echo is we let the echo get the better of us and we forget about our clinical judgment and make bad decisions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, this is a clinical decision backed up by findings, including echo, but not reliance solely on them. Obviously, if you saw a massive thrombus bouncing around the RV, that, that might be more uh, more confirmatory, um, but that's rare enough, I think. Very specific. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That and a clot in the leg, honestly, do it just ghost looking yeah. in the legs. Have a quick look. Is there a big thrombus sitting there? Very useful. Yeah. But yeah, the syncope for me was the big red flag initially when I heard that, that she was well and then she had the syncope and it's one of these kind of syncope plus things that Sally's talked about. So should I mention that? So the, the syncope plus syndromes, if you've never heard about this, I think, again, I took this off on the American podcast. Um, there's pure isolated syncope or TLOC or whatever you want to call it, transient loss of consciousness. And that can be things like vasovagal, or benign neurohormonal causes. It can be the arrhythmic ones like someone with a sick sinus or a complete heart block. But a syncope plus another symptom, so you'd make these think about a whole range of things. So syncope plus headache, ding, 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 should be subarach. Syncope plus back pain, should be ding, 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 should be AAA. Syncope plus abdominal pain, the young female, ding, 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 this should be ectopic. So these syncope plus syndromes should be really, really useful. A syncope plus chest pain would make me think about aortic dissection and would make me think about pulmonary embolism. Okay. <laughs> so we're, we're highly suspicious, but we don't have enough information at the moment to make the diagnosis. So I'm going to implement what you've suggested. Um, I'm going to put in, give some push dose adrenaline just while I put in a central line in the groin and then start a noradrenaline infusion, give some magnesium, give some amiodarone, and then reassess the patients and, and see if they're safe for CT now. So have they stabilized a little bit, Mo? Oh, come on, be good to this, mate. <laughs> She's got to got a bit better, surely. Okay. Will the, will the resource, resource gods be kind? <laughs> so things are things are looking a little bit better. Things are going from red to yellow and eventually to normal black on the recess monitors. So uh, we're looking good. Okay. Um, so then I think my priority would be to get this patient to CT and get a confirmatory diagnosis so that I can thrombolize safely and, and with that backup of the CT. So, Callum, what do you think here, just as the educational supervisor here, would you intubate this patient for CT? Uh, absolutely. They're tachypnic, they're shocked, they're acidotic, and they're on a moderate to substantial dose of noradrenaline. Yeah, I think I'll just get a 200 mils of propofol and uh, bang it in <laughs> and then ring the coroner and set the people, set the people <laughs> explain how I murdered a patient. Yeah. Uh, so no, is the answer. I'd avoid intubation in all, at all costs. It's RV failure is uh, intubation is a perilous procedure and you're going to reduce their preload by changing the intrathoracic pressures. You're going to cause vasodilation with your induction agents. Um, you're going to basically uh, high likelihood of precipitating cardiac arrest. So put them on 
high flow nasal cannula if I had it, and or otherwise just the non rebreather um, and uh, get them in and out of CT. Yeah, I think that's a really important point to make because I think these look like patients who are about to die. And if anybody else walks into the room, they'll immediately walk over to the ringoscope and some drugs and they'll think, oh, they need intubated. But this is someone that you will have to resist attempts to intubate either by members of the emergency team or by other teams. Is the case. This is not a good idea to intubate this patient unless like they're positively apneic. You know, I mean, you have to go, go for it, but um, you should really try to avoid that. Same for things like a pericardial tamponade as well. It's not mm. going to go well. And if I did want to intubate, you know, I'd use the hemodynamic stable induction agents like ketamine. Um, or Madaz, and I would use very low peeps and low yeah. huddle volumes and just trying to... A paralytic and an apology yeah. is a good way to describe that. <laughs> Sweet. So we've stabilized the patient. We've taken them to CT and um, confirmed... Well, have we confirmed a PE or are we completely off the mark? So there is a massive PE there. Good on you. Fantastic. And then um, I think now we'll definitely thrombolize. As you said already, this is a high risk or massive PE. So that's going to be one of the key interventions. Yeah. I think that's a key point. Now you can, some people will say, but your blood pressure is 100 now. Like, so one of the criteria for a massive or high risk PE is dependence on vasopressors. So yes, the blood pressure is now above the cutoff for massive PE, but that's because of interventions that you've done. And certainly you would still be very justified. And I think it would be a good idea to consider some form of, oh, removing that clot. Thrombolysis is what you're going to go for most of the time. There are niche places in the world that will do clot retrieval and things like that. You can even do a pulmonary endarterectomy. You can actually do a um, sternotomy, put them bypass and take the clot out. Again, these are not things that are commonly done. And again, if you've if you've got no adrenaline and you've got the patient half stabilized, you have actually now a little bit of time to get other people involved and come to a little consensus decision what the best way to manage them is. But again, that's only in the context of someone that now is nice and stable and hasn't gone from 10 to 80 in aura yeah. in five minutes. That is an unstable patient. I do also think we we have as we seem to collectively have quite a reticence to thrombolize for even confirmed PEs. And then we use the same dose of the same drug to thrombolize quite mild strokes um, who have a higher bleeding risk because they have intracranial pathology. And that's done by, you know, a soul med reg maybe on discussion over the phone with their consultant um, and yet you know a patient like this who's incredibly unstable if their blood pressure normalizes a bit to, to hold off on that when the bleeding risk is actually very low seems a bit kind of mad yeah yeah and I, I would echo that point as well the bleeding risk from thrombolysis looking at the now we're talking about the massive PE patient for whom there is no RCT evidence we do have evidence for the submassive PE patient and in that group while thrombolysis was not beneficial it did also show a low risk of bleeding complications super one thing we haven't touched on which uh, I probably should have thought about earlier was whether to give heparin or low molecular heparin when we're when we're considering PE you know if we're anticipating that this patient is is you know possibly going to get thrombolyzed um would you start that mm -hmm. As soon as you, the patient, you know, as soon as you've assessed them, would you wait for the thrombolysis or the CT? How would you approach yeah, that? So this, so this lady is a, this lady came in with the, the symptoms that she did and a well score of six. Would you, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd probably give the low molecular weight heparin at the start. But. I think it'd be fine. Again, if you were going into this, if she arrived like that with your number one diagnosis being PE, but she wasn't hypotensive. In other words, you're anticipating anticoagulation without lysis. Definitely would just go ahead and give it even, bef even probably before the CT scan if your level of um, suspicion was that strong. Um, I wouldn't hesitate from giving lysis if they then became a massive PE and do that. If I was going into this from day one thinking this is a massive PE, I would probably choose IV heparin. I didn't used to say that until I started doing intensive care. And now I actually appreciate being able to turn the thing off and knowing that the heparin will be all gone in two hours. Whereas you give the Clexian, maybe a good bit of kidney injury and the Clexian still hanging around um, 18 hours later. Again, that's with my ICU hat on going in from the start with the IV heparin infusions can be useful. The one thing I mentioned about heparin is don't forget a loading dose these are one of the people who require a loading dose of heparin. There is debate and confusion in the guidelines about whether you should 
hold heparin while the thrombolysis is ongoing? I have not received a satisfactory answer from chatting to a few world experts in this, including Jeff Klein and some other people. Jeff Klein tends to continue the heparin during this um, and the thrombolysis. Other people would pause it for a couple of hours. There's a wide range of practice in this. Super, thank you. Very good. Assuming you started that IV heparin, your ICU colleagues come down to uh, to take the patient off your hands and they are very happy with you. Alrighty. So, well done, Callum. That was a tricky case. And I think you made the right call in getting uh, senior help early. How do you, you, you feel it all went? Uh, well, the patient's survived to ICU so that's always a good thing um, and they you know could have easily died at many points so those kind of patients are the most challenging and most interesting to manage I think and what I enjoy about the job most but they're rare enough and it's it's important to really know what you're doing because the risks are so big and mm. um, it's really someone's life that depends one wrong drug or one wrong intervention can precipitate a cardiac arrest and that's a crazy burden of responsibility absolutely and 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 i suppose kind of talking about the you know the pathology that we were dealing with here so we had right ventricular failure essentially secondary to that pe so can you kind of summarize the key points in your assessment and management of the patient yeah there's an amazing quote by professor michael pinsky uh, the rv is not important until it is and once it is important it is everything the way you die is from right heart failure and I think that just encapsulates exactly how challenging it is to manage these patients and how much there is to play for, you know, one wrong move and you can kill them. So it's it's a big deal and you've got to get it right. And I think all the management and everything we've talked about, all the key concepts stems from this concept of the RV spiral of death and understanding the pathophysiology behind that is absolutely crucial to understanding how to manage these patients properly. Uh, so Andy, do you want to talk us through that? So there there are, I think, a few key principles to remember in thinking about the RV. It, it is a remarkable beast in that it has to deliver exactly the same cardiac output as the LV, but with a fraction of the mass, so mass sites with which to do so. So there is a lovely quote from a, there's a 2018 ICM paper that Moe had sent around. Um, it was by all the greats and the good of right ventricle critical care that says of the RV, and I quote, its primary function is to optimize systemic venous return by decreasing or keeping right atrial pressure as low as possible while simultaneously ejecting its highly varying end diastolic volume into a highly compliant and low resistance pulmonary circulation, end quote. Um, to sum this up for the RV, what I would say is the RV is very good at dealing with high volume flow, but it quickly fails when put under pressure. So just people talk about the RV spiral of death, and this is a, an image that comes up in lecture slides all the time. It's actually from the ESCP guidelines. It's a really useful way of thinking about the vicious cycle of right ventricular failure and where we might be able to intervene. So the first thing your RV is going to do when a clot lodges in the pulmonary artery is to dilate. And when it dilates, the tricuspid valve annulus opens up and you'll get lots of tricuspid regurge. This in a way is kind of adaptive. It decompresses the RV for a while, but ultimately you get increased RV tension as the myocytes are stretched to their startling recruitability and then well-being. Beyond that, you get lots of neurohormonal activation, just like you do in left heart failure, and this causes inflammation that increases RV oxygen demand, which worsens RV ischemia, that worsens contractility, that worsens cardiac output, that worsens preload LV, that worsens cardiac output, that worsens perfusion, blah, 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 and so the cycle continues. We need to intervene earlier in that cycle, as once established, it's pretty irreversible and you'll end up in a cardiac arrest situation. And I suppose our best techniques to correct it are going to be correcting hypoxia. So oxygen's a great um, pulmonary artery vasodilator. It's going to lower the pressures in the PA. It's going to 
reduce the pulmonary vascular resistance. We need to correct hypercarbia and acidosis. Those all kind of help with RV contractility, and we're going to need to maintain a decent perfusion pressure for the coronaries, and particularly the RCA with some noradrenaline. Finally, avoiding positive pressure or at least limiting the airway pressures will also keep the RV after load low. Um, do you have anything else to say about right ventricles? I think the echo stuff's really useful. I, I would strongly encourage people to be able to diagnose and just spot what a blown RV looks like, but you have to put it in context. I, I, like, I think we've got so carried away to a little bit with the ultrasound, and I think we it's that little kind of Dunning-Kruger thing. We get a little bit of knowledge about just about the spot or dilated right ventricle, and then our minds immediately go to PE, and we can't think of anything else. Yeah. Um, so you do have to put it in context for that as well. I think myself and Callum kind of said this before in one of the segments uh, a couple of months ago, but you just need to kind of situate um, ultrasound, no matter what modality you're, you're using, within your clinical exam. You're never going to say that whatever finding you have on clinical exam is 100% specific or whatever for for some pathology. So you just kind of need to treat your ultrasound with the, with the, with the same kind of degree of humility. The last thing I'd say about someone who is this sick, and I suppose it's very hard to articulate on a podcast, well, this sick means, because you could have a patient with the exact same vital sign who looks a lot better than, than this patient did. And so it's a very much a, a nuanced and a kind of art of medicine thing. But there are some of these patients, you won't have a huge number of them in your career who are this sick. And I think sometimes we are then reluctant to do the bigger interventions like the central line or the arterial line. Um, and we're kind of sometimes ringing somebody else for permission to do these things. Or we wait a lot extra 15, 20 minutes or half an hour of giving two liters of fluid before we think about giving, getting the central line in and doing that. I think for these patients, the central line and arterial line at a very early stage of the resuscitation can be incredibly useful because IV access is a real challenge for these ones down the line. And I know everybody says, oh, you can just put an IO in. There are just, there are not a lot of things you can do with an IO. <laughs> they're brilliant and they're great, but you can't do a great deal through an IO. Yeah. And I wouldn't get distracted by all the myriad of other pressure choices of vasopressins and milvernones and dibutamines and what you could use. The nice thing is, is that the more and more kind of guidelines come out to say that noradrenaline is probably the first line presser for any condition, be it sepsis, be it cardiogenic shock, be it PE. It's not that there's not nuances in there and there are not other things that you can add on, but from our point of view in the emergency department, noradrenaline is pretty much always the right choice. Hard from anaphylaxis. Super. Very good. All right. Okay. I think we'll wrap it up there. Um, I'll, re- I'll leave a couple of links for kind of resources and whatever. Um, I don't know about you guys. I found the, the page on uh, RV failure on deranged physiology fantastic. Well, concise enough and, um, and, and very easy to follow. But then there's also a very good review article uh, that was in um, Intensive Care Medicine. I think it was 2018. Prof Pinsky was one of the authors on that one. It's a little bit longer, a little bit harder to digest, but it's uh, quite good as well. Super. Sarah Craig does a great uh, grand rounds on the MCRIT site where she talks about RV failure as well. Sweet. Excellent. Thanks very much, guys. Cheers. Thanks, Will. Next up, we've got another distinguished returning guest. Dr. Nicholas Lim joins Callum in the echo chamber. Um, so that was a superb chat with Andy and Mo. And now we're very lucky to have on Nicholas Lim for the echo chamber section, where we're going to do a little bit of a deep dive into the ultrasound assessment of RV failure and shock in general. Nick is a consultant in emergency medicine, and he's just finishing up his ICU fellowship in Galway, where he's been working for the last year. He's going to be a, a dual consultant in EM and ICU. And he's also an ultrasound leadership academy professor and a general wizard with ultrasound. So thanks so much for coming on the show, Nick. Thank, thank you for having me, um, Callum. It's uh, great to be here. Uh, hope to hope to be able to uh, help out with this uh, discussion. Super. So as you heard in the preceding case, we had a, a lady with a se- severe, a large PE, 
and significant hypertension and results. And we mentioned some of the ultrasound findings during the initial clinical exam, and we kind of parked them there in order to come back now and discuss them in more detail. So, you know, what's your approach in RV failure? Why is ultrasound so important? Well, so I think uh, with any patient that comes in with shock, in the emergency uh, department, you are trying to make uh, very good decisions very quickly for this patient with very limited information. And um, uh, RV failure is a process that uh, if you do not identify right from the start, um, it is pretty much a spiral of death. You know, the patient will die very quickly. They do not respond well to your traditional management of uh, shock from, say, sepsis or LV failure, for that matter. So, you know, finding out that the patient has RV failure, I think, is almost paramount because your your management then can really be targeted towards this RV failure. And, you know, why do we have to use ultrasound? Can't we just examine them clinically? The clinical exam for RV failure is uh, really poor. It doesn't really uh, perform very well. When you talk about the JVP or, you know, examining if they have, a, a, you know, an enlarged liver, especially, or, or say, for example, a, a brewery in the, in the um, uh, hepatic vasculature, I, I don't think that is going to work out too well. Uh, when you have a tool at your, at, right by your side where you can actually just put it on and you can actually see what is actually happening. So, yeah, I don't think the clinical examination does very well. Now, you know, feeling the skin, uh, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, touching the patient in the extremities centrally, you know, give you a kind of like a gauge of skin temperature. That probably is probably the best clinical examination that I would do for patients who come in with shock just to determine almost their systemic vascular resistance. Fantastic. And... Um... Before we've made the diagnosis of RV failure, do you have a systematic approach of approaching uh, hypertensive patients with ultrasound? So with all residents or um, uh, you know, colleagues who, who work with me, if the patient comes in shocked, they need an ultrasound. You know, and they need a, not only an echo, but uh, they need focused exam. And uh, you know, this has been described in the literature by Scott Weingart. And I allude to the uh, RUSH exam, which uh, follows the HIMAP acronym. So we look at the heart. Uh, so this is a really focused exam. Should take no more than two minutes to do. Heart, IVC, Morrison's pouch, uh, i.e. or EFAS. Look at the aorta. Look at the pneumo. Uh, look for a pneumothorax. Super. So we've done that, and we're now focusing in on the RV. Um, so what are your what are the best views, and you know what are some pearls for looking at the RV? So, um, you know, we do have to appreciate that a patient who comes in shocked, these patients may not be the best uh, candidates for doing a cardiac echo on, um, although all of them should get one as part of their focused assessment. There is no favorite view. I like all the views, <laughs> Callum. And I suppose it really depends on which views you can get. But you should be able to get a pretty good idea of what's going on with the patient with maybe two or three of the four views there. So, okay, so any view uh, that you can get, but so let's go through them uh, one by one then. So you usually start with the parasternal long axis view. So what findings are you looking for on there? Yeah, so from top to bottom, so from near field, uh, which is closest to the probe, uh, to the far field, which is furthest from the probe, you are looking for the, what I call the one is to one is to one ratio. So starting from the top, the first structure you should see is the right ventricular outflow tract. 
you know, and then uh, coming down into like the middle of the uh, ultrasound screen, you should see the aortic outflow tract as well as the um, ascending aorta. And then uh, in the far field, then you should see the left atrium. And this should, they should all correspond in size. So there should be one is to one is to one. If, for example, you see that uh, the RV uh, in this view is say maybe two is to one is to one, then, you know, you obviously, it gives you an idea that there's something not quite right with the uh, right ventricle. So then from there, you rotate 90 degrees and you get a peristernal short axis. And a normal peristernal short axis should have the LV in the middle of the screen uh, with the RV wrapped around it. So if you can imagine a donut, which is the LV, and a croissant wrapped around it, you know, that would be how a normal uh, peristernal short axis uh, should look like. If there's any abnormalities, then you may see enlargement of the uh, RV and uh, overpressure can cause you to have the RV pushing into the LV. It is a zero-sum game. The uh, pericardium is a fixed space. So when the RV starts to distend, the LV will start to reduce in size. So you will see what is classically known as the D sign then. The apical four chamber is supposed for most people who do uh, echo, uh, don't do echo very frequently. They can find this view quite challenging. And, you know, depending on your skill set, your ratio of the RV to the LV should be about, uh, so the RV should be about two thirds the size of the LV. As it approaches a one is to one uh, ratio, that's uh, you'll be talking about mild to moderate, um, you know, uh, RV distension. Uh, and then if it goes, uh, if the RV is much larger than the LV, say more than one is to one, then uh, you can say that there's uh, there's overpressure in the RV, the right ventricles, right ventricular system. Uh, I like the subcostal view uh, of the RV. You can tell quite a bit there, and at best you are only underestimating this, uh, your, at, at best you are, you know, that's the maximum uh, size of your RV. So, you know, you can tell quite quickly then if the RV is really, really distended or not with the uh, peristernal, uh, sorry, the subcostal view. Fantastic. And then, so that's a kind of qualitative or eyeball assessments. And then in terms of quantitative uh, measurements, you know, it's something that we don't do much of in uh, kind of entry level ultrasound, but there is a measurement, the TAPSI, and that is very useful in this regard. So can you talk to me about that? Yeah. So the TAPSI, that stands for Tricuspid Annular Plane Systolic Excursion. So basically you're looking at the attachment of the tricuspid valve on the right ventricular free wall and you're uh, measuring the forward and back movement of it with M mode. So you need to put your, you need to get a good parasternal, uh, sorry, a, a good apical four chamber, switch on the M mode, put your M mode ice pick over the, uh, uh, the tricuspid annular, uh, annulus uh, on the free wall, run the M mode. So you will see the forward and back excursion of your tricuspid valve uh, or uh, tricuspid annulus. And uh, any measurement under, 1.7 is uh, considered, uh, you know, abnormal, as in the RV is not really moving as well. Uh, and anything more than 1.7, obviously, is uh, pretty much normal. Um, and this this has shown to be quite a reliable measurement, you know, even in, uh, you know, its inter reliability, its kappa actually is uh, is pretty high. 
And uh, it's a sensitive and specific measurement as well, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it performs pretty well uh, for measurements that can be simply done. You know, so it's uh, the literature from Ueti uh, who published a paper on this on TAPSI back in 2002. Uh, they quote a sensitivity of 80% and a specificity of uh, 75%. Super. And um, there's another quantitative assessment which people might read about, and that's kind of measuring the RV and LV internal diameters. Uh, is that something you would recommend or is that a little bit advanced? I, I think, you know, that measurement, I don't really, I think depending on the um, the ability of the, the, the individual performing this assessment, this can be quite challenging because if you're not getting a good uh, apical four chamber to start with, this measurement is not going to be accurate. If you have the probe over rotated or under rotated, uh, you know that can certainly affect the, uh, the this, these particular measurements. So I don't really use uh, these to make a clinical decision, uh, even if I'm able to get them. Okay, fantastic. And then finally, as part of the assessment, we're going to be looking at the IVC. Uh, like any cardiac assessment, the IVC is a crucial component of that. And so, how does IVC fit into right heart failure? So for me, it's uh, you know it. it like if I'm going to do echo, I want to know what's going on in uh, between the the right ventricle and the left ventricle. I want to know what's happening before the right uh, before the right atrium, i.e. the IVC. So a big distended IVC is telling me that there is no forward flow. It is an excellent marker for RA pressures. Uh, you know, if your RA pressure is high, then you got to wonder about what's going on in the RV and what your RV systolic pressure is, because that is not obviously a normal situation. Yeah. And I've seen the CVP, I've seen the, the IVC size approximated to the central venous pressure. Is that a reliable approximation to make? Yeah, so it, it also depends on where your CVP is being measured. So uh, ideally, you want a central line that kind of sits in your uh, superior vena cava, or maybe even sometimes in the right atrium. And that's an accurate marker or accurate uh, measurement. You know, I hear a lot of people, they knock the uh, central venous pressure as a random number generator. You know, it depends on how you position the patient and all this kind of stuff. But it needs to be calibrated. It's the same as your arterial uh, blood pressure. If you don't calibrate it properly, if you don't have the transducer in the right place, it is also a random number generator. So, uh, yes, the CVP is an accurate measurement, you know, in off RA pressures. But you have to take that in the context that the where you're measuring this is important. Super. And... What, have you got any pearls for assessment of the IVC if you're struggling to get a view? So uh, with the IVC, um, you know, uh, I, I, I usually start in the subcostal area. So I have a probe marker, uh, echo probe with a probe marker facing towards the patient's head. I just kind of come in at the midline and then move laterally to the right with the, uh, and then coming tail down a little bit to try and direct the probe in that position. Usually you will see the IVC quite easily. There is obviously a possibility that the patient is uh, quite large, uh, has quite a lot of, uh, quite, has a big beer belly, uh, and you may not be able to get this view accurately. Uh, what I do then is I actually go more lateral, so almost like an E-fast view. Um, and if you can imagine directing the probe towards the patient's vertebral spine, so you want to see the vertebral spine. And as you tilt or fan the probe, uh, you will see a vessel come into view. And uh, generally, that is the IVC. So you can get a kind of a, what we call a side shot of the IVC. Uh, and that can be done quite, uh, quite uh, repeatably on most patients, even if they're big. 
Right, so one uh, one trick that Sally Graglia taught me was, you know, one of the big things you don't want to do is be looking at the aorta and thinking it's the IVC because obviously the aorta will always be uh, of a certain diameter. You know, it's never going to be collapsed. And mm-hmm. so she recommended if you're going for the midline view, just looking at the aorta first and then fanning to the patient's right and the next vessel you see will be the IVC. And that way you're confident in your head, you've, you've visualized both vessels and you know which one you're looking at. Yeah, what what uh, that that's uh, that's a very good tip. Uh, what I was taught was uh, quite similar. So uh, you can start in the midline. If you see a structure, you know a, tu- a long tubular structure, you go a little bit to the right. If you see another tubular structure, the, that's probably the aorta. Come back into the midline. Go go to the right. Then the next structure would be the IVC. And then if you go further more to the right with the probe, the next uh, tubular structure that you'll see is the gallbladder. So you know it'd be aorta. IVC and then gallbladder from left to left of the patient to the right of the patient. Super, thank you. And sometimes when we get the CT PA back, they'll comment on things like reflux of contrast and you know increased RV size on CT. Is the ultrasound findings more sensitive or less sensitive than the CT findings? So the CT, the CT really is a static um, image of what's actually happening with the heart. You know, based on the literature that I've looked at, the radiologist will call the RV as dilated once it's about 0.9 times the size of the LV. You know, whereas with ultrasound, you know, if you uh, if uh, our threshold is two thirds the size of the LV, so you know, in that res- uh, in that aspect, and especially because it's a dynamic image, so it's uh, you know you're looking at it moving through the cardiac cycle, you get a much better feel of what's actually happening with the RV as opposed to a static image with CT. Mentioning about the uh, reflux of contrast, that's useful. But, uh, you know, if you're skilled with a bit of color flow and you recognize, you know, what a hepatic vein waveform flow looks like, you know, you can actually tell that quite easily as well. Brilliant. So what you're saying is if a CT report comments on RV, uh, RV distension, then, you know, it's certainly there. But if they don't comment on it, then you might still find some mild degree of RV failure on ultrasound that wasn't picked up on CT. And then the last comment, which was made during the case discussion was in, a, in extremis, if the patient's in cardiac arrest or peri-arrest, Andy mentioned having a quick look in both groins to see if you can see a common femoral DVT, and that might increase your likelihood ratio of there being a P. How would you go about doing a, a quick a targeted assessment for a common femoral DVT? So the, uh, you know, obviously you want to be doing all the usual stuff that you would be doing first. You know, you want to be making sure that the patient is being resuscitated. You wouldn't want to go and just go and do a DVT assessment without that, uh, without uh, making sure that the patient is being looked after from other aspects. Doing the DVT study is, you know, it's pretty straightforward. You know, you're looking uh, in the groins for the femoral veins, you know, and uh, it's uh, targeted pressure with the probe to see that the vein actually collapses completely. And I will go uh, above the chem- common femoral vein, so where the uh, saphenofemoral vein joins the, the femoral vein to form the common femoral vein, you know, I will compress above and below that, you know, and uh, go down uh, probably as far as about a third of the thigh, you know, and then uh, if if you can even to have a look and see if there's a clot in the popliteal vasculature, uh, that can be challenging at the best of times. So uh, you know, I, I I obviously stop my I would stop my exam if you see a big DVT there in the femoral vein. Um, I think at that point, you know, once you are so suspicious of it, I think you're going to pull the trigger on uh, thrombolizing this patient anyway.
Great. Thanks for that summary. Have you got any, uh, or could you summarize briefly um, your key learning points for assessment of RV failure with ultrasound? So yeah, so uh, you know anybody with shock, they need a focused examination with ultrasound. Uh, you know, I start this examination with the high map. I want to make sure that they do not have RV failure because then uh, your management is very different to patients with other forms of shock. Uh, after this, uh, I look at as many views as I can get on a patient. So your uh, personal long, personal short, apical four chamber, uh, subcostal view, kind of have a good idea or a better idea then of what's actually happening in this 3D structure that we call the heart. We'll do the TAPSI just to see what, what the function is of the RV, if there's dilatation of the RV or if I suspect dilatation of the RV. And have a look at the IVC as well, because that, uh, you know, is obviously linked to the RA uh, and gives you an idea of the pressures in the uh, right ventricular system. If the patient is uh, peri-arrest or in cardiac arrest, I'll go and have a look for a DVT as well uh, with a greater compression of the uh, femoral vein. Uh, so that, that is my assessment. Uh, or that's how I would assess someone in RV failure or shock due to RE failure. Superb. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Nick. Really appreciate you being on here. No problem. Thank you. Thanks for the invite, Callum. For our last segment this month, Callum's making use of that grand owl stretch. He took a trip out to Gildare to chat to Dr. Pun Tong on a sunny evening. So I'm here with Pun Tong in his stunning house in Kildare on a lovely sunny day. And I'm delighted to be here because Pun is a senior registrar in Tala, where I work, and has been a, a mentor to me and an inspiration and just a, a really incredible clinician. And he said some things which have changed my view of emergency medicine. And one of the things that has really stuck with me, something he said to me a few years ago, certainty is for amateurs, uncertainty is for experts. So thanks for coming on the podcast, Pun. Hello. And what do you mean by that quote? It's actually something that I've heard from a very senior clinician in America that he came up with this quote and he's a professor out there and it was on a podcast and it really resonated with me when I was in my senior years when he said, you know, this, this quote of uncertainty is, is for the expert. And, and what, what this really means is that, you know, when we, when we start to put too much emphasis on a certain diagnosis we're often proved wrong and as the years goes by you will notice that no matter what you do uh, no matter how careful you are there will be cases where it it sort of steps outside the the usual uh, presentation and to think that for example a, a surgeon may say you know a 35 year old just can't have diverticulitis but the problem is I have seen someone with diverticulitis at 35. So that's the whole notion that, you know, because of people's lack of experience, they they keep thinking that there is only one way of, of presenting with the disease. But as we all know, as the years goes on, we know that diseases of every kind can present in many different ways. And it's always very useful in emergency medicine to keep an open mind and to teach other people that it's okay to be uncertain. In fact, it's one of the, one of the core things that you, you need to have in emergency medicine is you know, be, being able to handle with, with uncertainty. And I think it, 
it takes experience and it takes many years to finally realize that it's actually okay to be uncertain uh, about something. Yeah, and that comes, Simon Qualley has a great quote that we're not diagnosticians, we're probabiliticians, and we're not in the business of diagnosing people with certainty, even using the tests we think are good tests. We're still, they all have false positives and false negatives, we're still just working in, in probabilities. Yes. And it's one of the hardest things in emergency medicine is you're, you're at that very first presentation, the patient hasn't had time, their pathology hasn't fully developed, and we don't have often the, the tests yet. So the case we've been discussing was an unstable pulmonary embolism, and you're making these critical decisions in the recess room, which could mean the difference between life and death, and you're only working on a, a list of differentials that you've generated from clinical exam and a few point of care tests, and probabilities. You don't know that the patient has a PE, it's just the more likely thing and you can wait and do nothing until you've got confirmatory diagnosis, but the patient might deteriorate and die in that time. So you have to act just on these these balance of probabilities. And so I, I, I guess that point is, uh, there are points when it, you have to take a little bit more risk. So for example, uh, as you mentioned with the unstable PE, uh, that's a very different situation to say somebody who's got abdominal pain who's a little bit tachycardic and in those situations the emergency physician is in a very unique position in that we have to think quick and we have to act on experience and we have to use our colleagues and all the knowledge that everybody has to come to what you think at the time as the best decision to make obviously your knowledge in terms of you know research in terms of you know, case reports and, and what you've actually experienced matters in, in, in these critical situations. But you, you can't just do nothing. It's, it's very detrimental in certain situations where you do nothing and watch the patient deteriorate. So as, as, as you build expertise, I, I guess there is this foundation where it, you almost keep to some basics in terms of basic fundamentals that you know for example, blood pressure, uh, oxygenation is still back down to the to the ABC, but it's the way that you you, you handle those those parameters. Uh, it's where the expertise comes in. And then the this the experience aspect, and you've talked before to me about building up your clinical gestalt over the years and. One of the best ways to do that, you said, is to when you see someone else managing a tricky case or making a really amazing diagnosis or missing a diagnosis, really looking into that case and thinking, what is it about that that was special? Why did they clock that patient had this rare pathology or why did they miss a common pathology? Yeah, so I... Yeah, obviously, there's there's one thing that we all all the clinician of of any grade of any seniority needs to have our ego removed, and have that humility to know that there's always more to learn, whether from an SHO, because you know you just can't see all the cases on the planet, and. I'm often very intrigued and very interested uh, and I'll have no issue with listening to people, especially about rare diseases like aortic dissections, how they actually present. Because if you told me that he presented with chest pain going to the back with different blood pressure of left and right, then, you know, that's, that's not something that, that's going to add too much to, to my infantry in terms of the diagnosis. But if you told me that they just had sudden pain for an hour going to the back and 
it felt like it just went through the body and then they had no pain after that. She was unwell enough to think, actually, I might come in. And we did a battery of tests and there was just a little trop leak. And because of that, the the clinician then went on to do a CTA autogram and she she did have a dissection. Now, that's very interesting. So I know that from, from that one case, which I didn't see, that it can present like that. So it's very important that, that we learn from other clinicians and that will enable us to handle risk in a much more efficient way. And, and you need to have that sort of humility to, you know, speak to even junior people. Like you can learn from anybody, even the medics, uh, the surgeons, they, they are into other specialties. And I would often ask them, what do they see in clinic? how they manage them, you know, uh, what, what's people cath lab result and, and all kinds of questions that you can still learn from them. And by doing so, you just become better. And by becoming better, you can handle these risks in the emergency room in a much more efficient way, which I think we're going to come on to. But I think that's, that's, that's very critical. And we, we just all have to, you know, have respect for each other. And uh, in that way, it, it actually allows people to have more of an open discussion about these things rather than I'm better than you or you are better than me. There's, there's, there's just no such thing. It's, it, we should all get better together in the sake of the patient. Couldn't agree more. And that brings us on to kind of the other type of risk, which is less acute, but pro- far more common for us. Um, and that's the kind of the discharge risk, the risk of missing smaller things in well patients, you know, um, the, the super high acuity resource cases might take up a lot of your memory of the job, but they don't take up the majority of the, the actual job. And it's sending patients home from minors and category threes that is the majority of our work. And that's something you're particularly good at. And, you know, you see your numbers are literally double that of every other emergency position or most of them. So how do you, you know, on the face of it, that is that just you taking more risk, being seeing patients quicker and being a bit more cavalier? Or, I don't think it is because, you know, for the people who know me, so, you know, seeing the, the well and finding out the needle in the haystack of the, you know, of the sick person in the waiting room is I enjoy doing that. And the reason is because I'm very efficient at doing it and I know I can make a very, very big impact on the department as, as general in terms of improving waiting times and, and really making sure that that sick person in the waiting room don't wait for 12 hours before something else happened. And it, it is unfortunately a job that I feel that you have to gain a certain experience to become efficient in. And it's not about taking more risk. Uh, I think it's about efficiency of risk taking is, is what I like to call it. So what I mean by that is you, the more patients you see, you will start recognizing patterns and pattern patterns of presentation is a thing in emergency medicine and it's about accumulating that that experience so that if someone just goes outside of that comfortable pattern your your red light goes on and your risk-taking behavior then then uh, goes to another level in the sense that you're not going to take any more risk and i i often say this that you know uh, that there are certain things that you may, you, it may be okay to look over, but that the, the, there are certain things that you can't. So a very classic example is the sudden onset headache. So a lot of junior doctors will feel, oh, I send people home I, all the time. But when it comes to like that sudden onset headache, 
I, I, I never send them home, no matter how senior you get. And that's the sort of risk taking. You've you got to know when to, to take a little bit more risk and when not to. So another example is the posterior infarct with vertigo. So again, my risk threshold for that is, is much less. Whereas on chest pain, I know that if by the time I take a history and examination, I do the bloods and an ECG and a chest x-ray, and if all is okay, that, that your risk profile of anything bad is extremely low. So by knowing these data that is forever you know, improving and forever coming out, it, it makes our job easier. And uh, I cannot stress the fact that we have to keep up to date uh, with the information and we have to start challenging a certain practice uh, that can sometimes be a little bit outdated and really you know, practice the, the up-to-date information. And that's how you become efficiency uh, at risk-taking. And one more point is that this is a self-constructive cycle in the sense that if you keep seeing more people, you get better. You'll be able to become more efficient at that risk-taking. And so you can see double the numbers than, say, another junior doctor. It's not necessarily taking more risk. It's just that you'll be able to come up to a reasonable risk decision uh, at a very quick pace because you've done it so many times and and again i would urge everybody you know unfortunately there is a part of medicine that you just have to you just have to grind the, the numbers out you know and you know you mentioned not wanting to take any risks with posterior strokes I, I guess that also speaks to the diagnostic tests and how accurate they are and it's something that we should all be aware of the tests we're using you know, what is the sensitivity? What is the specificity? What, you know, is this actually ruling out? And, you know, a good example that we use every day is... Absolutely. And it's back to the point of you need to know the data. You, yeah. you know, a, a lot of people think, oh, you know, get a CT head and it's okay. But if you know a CT head can miss up to 50% of posterior stroke, then, you know, you're, you're, you can't discharge them. You, you just, they haven't reached to a point where you feel that, the harm risk is low enough for you to discharge them. And again, it's all down to, again, speaking to people, learning from people, reading podcasts and, and knowing these critical decision-making data. And, and you know, it takes time to go through everything, but you get the hang of it that there are some data that it will just catch your eye because you just instantly know, actually, hold on, this will make a difference in my practice. For example, you know, if, if you just a rheumatology paper comes up about the latest therapy of, of rheumatoid arthritis, you just know you're not going to read that paper. Whereas if there's a new decision aid on uh, ruling out a PE, for example, when the PERC rule first came out, you will read everything about it. And so that's how you bec- become efficient at, at knowing the data as well. But that will come with practice. But you, you mentioned the perk rule. That brings up another concept that we have to be comfortable with the idea that we're not ruling out pathologies. We're just ruling them out. We're, we're um, reducing the risk to an acceptable threshold. So with the example of perk, the sensitivity is 97.4% in the original study. So that's around 1 in 50 people will be missed. And this is a rule out rule that we all stand behind and use. But we're still, you know, even using it correctly, you're going to miss one in 50 cases. And that's not a that's not a bad thing, necessarily. That's a accepted risk level for that condition, because the risk of over investigating is quite high. Mm-hmm. And, you, you know, you told me an anecdote which really stuck with me of that patient who 
with the P and then the bleed. Like, do you want to tell that? Yeah, so, so P is a, a very talked about topic in emergency medicine. And with this case, effectively, she, she developed pleuritic chest pain and some signs of infection. And on her first visit, she was diagnosed with a pneumonia, sent home on antibiotics. And unfortunately, the pleuritic chest pain didn't resolve, so she reattended to the emergency department and the clinician then did a D-dimer and it was positive and she went on to have a CTPA which was reported as normal overnight but then it was amended in the morning that there was a subsegmental PE. She was admitted and then she was started on anticoagulation and she was over the moon, the patient, because she was like, finally, this doctor's got it right. Unfortunately, then she developed a bleed into the brain as a consequence and as a result needed uh, surgery for, for, for the stroke that she suffered because of the warfarin and because of the fact that she had a bleed she can't continue the warfarin and because she's had a PE they, they put a green f- filter in the vascular surgeon and so that's that's even more uh, trauma to the patient and she was she then got, uh, felt quite well. She got onto a normal life and she was invited to speak for a little talk on stroke in the young. And she had a panic attack uh, in the lift and somebody witnessed a seizure and she was admitted again and she couldn't drive. The neurologist was like, because of the bleed, you had a seizure. But it probably turned out to be a vasovagal rather than a, a, a genuine seizure. But because she had this bleed that happened, the neurologist was just not happy, despite the fact that her EEG were fine. And her life was just completely ruined. And and then when she saw me, it was actually just, she swallowed it on a granola seed and it, it choked her a little bit. And then she developed chest pain afterwards and she was actually worried that uh, she had a clot in her lung. And when I went back to her whole case, it seemed like it was only a subsegmental PE, and the chances is she never actually had a clot. And it was just the perfect storm, it's what I would like to call it, in the sense that this patient unfortunately did have a, a pneumonia, but was uh, diagnosed with a PE that was of questionable sort of physiological uh, issues. And her life was destroyed because of that. And I think when I made the talk about her, I think she she couldn't drive. She had to visit about four uh, other physicians, including the hematologist, the neurosurgeon, uh, the, the stroke consultant, all without a car. And I just sat there and told her, actually, she may not have a clot. And, uh, and she was a bit dumbfounded, to be honest. But it was just one of those cases that it is out there. And with those cases, unfortunately you know, from a medical legal term, everyone is kind of looking out, I guess, partially for the patient, but partially for themselves as well. So, yeah. Well, this is a, uh, another concept which you mentioned and it really resonated with me, but there's two different types of risk which often get conflated. There's the risk to the patient from their pathology and then there's the risk to the doctor of getting sued or missing a diagnosis in inverted commas. And we tend to operate maybe on a mixture of those two, and we should be operating just on the benefit of the patient. Um, but no one sees those downstream effects, you know, and it's my decision in the middle of the night whether to admit someone or discharge them, and I'm a bit on the fence. You know, admitting them eliminates the risk to me to zero. It far from eliminates the risk to the patient. In fact, it might massively increase it if they get covered a week later and die from that. 
that will never come back to me and say, well, why do you admit that patient? You know, it's just like, oh, well, things happen. But actually, those are decisions we make every day that impact patients. And Simon Carley really eloquently talks about that, you know, for for a missed diagnosis in inverted commas to be harmful, the patient has to deteriorate, they have to be discharged, they have to get worse, and often they don't. So many pathologies, you know, that a patient can live with and just recover. But if they do get worse, they have to get so bad that they can't see a healthcare professional before being treated properly. And then even the patients who we do diagnose, we tend to think that, okay, great, we've made a diagnosis that it stops there. But actually, of the proportion of diagnosis we make, some will get the right treatment and benefit from that treatment. And overall, it's a good thing. But some will get treatments and get harm from that treatment. Or some would have been fine without any treatments. And then they got treatments and deteriorated. So there's this complex web that of, of risk and of interactions that we're very rarely kind of cognizant of but it affects the the, you know our daily practice so yeah i guess you know the point is i i I do say this to a lot of juniors is that you know that the easy decision is to admit them the the hard decision is actually to act in the best interest of the patient and get away from defensive medicine and really look at the patient holistically and have their sort of values included in in your planning at the end of the day, as doctors, we, we have to treat patients as patients and not for ourselves in the sense like, oh, if I let her go, something like this might happen and then I'm going to get sued, so I'll just admit them. And unfortunately, we still find that sort of practice happening on a daily basis where patients are unnecessarily uh, admitted. I've just lost count about how many cases that were admitted for something very trivial and they had a fall, they break their hip, they catch COVID in the recent times and and actually people have passed away because of, of, of those consequences. So I think the key point with defensive medicine versus you know patient-oriented medicine, it's, it's all in the communication. Even the feel of the whole consultation can sometimes guard you. Now, obviously, if, if you have a patient who who you can sense that they want to be admitted and go through the, the battery of tests despite being unnecessary and despite the fact that you've laid down all the facts and figures to them, they're still not happy. Don't discharge those patients. And that's the other side is that, you know, a lot of the times we you have to treat the patient's emotions as well. Like, And you only get in trouble... If that patient's need is not satisfied in that sense, then they will sue you. Whereas, you know, if you've explained everything well enough, even if you get it wrong, I find that you will rarely get into trouble. And I've heard you do that, you know, when I've been working in the adjacent rat room to you and you really treat the patient like an equal, explain the risks, explain clearly that you cannot, you have not ruled out the serious pathology that they're worried about but that you feel it is safe for them to go home, but only if they, you know, agree to come back if any of these symptoms happen or if they feel they get worse. And the end result is a very kind of, as you say, shared decision, a very mature decision, and in my opinion, a very safe decision where the patient leaves understanding that you haven't 100% excluded any any serious pathology, but at the same time, they're happy not to be over-investigated or further investigated. Yeah, so... I, I, the one key point is, you know, we have to treat patient in a sense that they are intelligent. They will be able to understand 
how you've come to this that decision. The fault is with the clinician not being able to explain that in a way that the patient will understand, you know. To to tell someone that look, there is only a one to two percent chance of something bad happening to you. A- anyone on the planet will be able to understand that, and you have to reassure the patient into how you came to that decision. Like you've done it, you've actually done it. Like you've consulted, you've done blood tests. So so tell the patient. And I find a lot of clinicians doing the consultation, they they just kind of say. You're, everything is okay, you can go home now. Yeah, there's nothing to worry about with your chest pain. That's just not good enough. Whereas, you know, there's so many other ways of explaining that uh, in, a, in a much more receptive way. And I think the first rule is you have to treat the patient as someone who's as, as intelligent as you. And once they can feel that they're not, you know, being treated like some stupid idiot, then they'll listen and, and, and usually the, the consultation is, is, is very satisfactory for both the doctors and the patient. Super. Well, thanks so much for joining us. That was gold. Thank you, Callum. Thank you. And that is it for another episode of the Report. Thanks once again for tuning in and for being with us for a whole year now. Looking forward to sharing many more milestones with you all. A special thanks to our adult in the room, Dr. Andy Neal, and our guests, Dr. Nicholas Lim and Dr. Pontong. Find us on Twitter at The Case Report to join the discussion. Subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you prefer. And if you liked what you heard, give us a rating or review. It'll help new people find the show. Until next time, may your coffee be strong and your rounds be grand. TCR out. <laughs>